Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Mike, there's so much to cover this week. We speak with former doubles number one and ESPN commentator Renee Stubbs. We have to cover the saga between Novak Djokovic and the government of Australia. A handful of tournaments, but first, the place to start, international competition Canada winning the ATP Cup. What a first week of the 2022 tennis season. I feel like it was already a season onto itself with all the things that have happened on and unfortunately off the court. But yeah, let's stick with the tennis and let's stick with the uh, Canadian, the big Canadian result, which is out of 16 teams in the ATP Cup and only the third installment of this uh, international tournament. Canada comes away with the uh, title, with the trophy. And this is without our veterans there, no Milos Raonic, no Vashik Pospisil. It was like time to give the keys to the car to the kids and let them drive and and look at how they handled it with both Felix Ojaliasim and Denis Shapovalov, you know, two childhood friends. It was, what a, what a story, you know, you can make a made-for-TV movie out of this, the two childhood buddies that come along and win it for Canada. So uh, just another great progression for Canadian tennis. And um, something we thought they were certainly capable of, but I don't think we expected to necessarily happen when we looked at the competition in this event as well. No, I, I certainly think we were reviewing them as potential contenders, but uh, I, I must say I was surprised by this as well. And as you said, beautiful childhood friends. We had so many like perfect uh, picturesque moments between these two on the doubles court, leaping into each other's arms, so many big time victories. And, you know, Canada kind of started out slow in this event, uh, trying to get out of their group at first. Uh, Dennis was a little rusty out of the get go. But once this group got fire, you see they go through Great Britain, Germany, they topple Russia, who is, of course, led by Danil Medvedev and then beating Spain for the title, um, which in effect was a rematch of the 2019 Davis Cup, of course, different rosters in this sense. Rafael Nadal, of course, not there for the Spanish team. Uh, but you see what happens at the international stage when Canada is carrying its best. And this was still minus Milos and Vashik. Dennis and Felix are, are two of the best hardcore players in the world. And uh, before we get to, I guess, the, the results in the finals and even the semifinals, the biggest win for me this week was Felix Ojeali-Asim notching his second career victory over Alexander Zverev. When he won that match and it was 6-4, 4-6, 6-3, I, I thought that was a turning point for the whole roster. Yeah, it's a huge win. I mean, Zverev's ranked, what, third in the world right yeah. now. And uh, so for Felix to do that twice within, you know, a fairly short time, half a year is is very impressive. And I think it's going to give him, I think this event for both of them is going to give them that added confidence. I mean, Felix is now back into the top 10, number nine. I believe Dennis is, is knocking on the door at number 14. And I think this is going to give them, and Felix in particular, I believe that extra confidence to feel like he belongs there and that he can beat these top guys and, uh, and to win a competition of this magnitude, even though Felix hasn't won an ATP title yet. And we, I, I don't count this as an individual accomplishment for him because it was a, a group effort, but I think this is going to lead him to play that much more um, openly and freely when he does get to another ATP final. Uh, for me, one of the most impressive things was uh, how the two of them handled themselves in doubles because even though they won um, you know, the junior level together, they haven't played a lot of doubles together as professionals. They both have their regular partners uh, in Bopana and Herkatch. And so to come together with not a lot of match play on the same side of the net, but pull off big victories like beating uh, the, the British tandem of Salisbury and Jamie Murray was pretty big. Mm -hmm. And then obviously in the semifinals to beat Safalin and Medvedev 10-7 uh, in that uh, final set. Uh, also just speaks to their um, you know, emerging confidence, not just as singles players, but doubles players too. So that really kind of caught me off guard that they would have that level of success in the doubles matches too, which was key to get them into that final against Spain. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely crucial. And as I said, it was a slow start out of the gates for Canada, um, losing that initial tie against the United States. And Denis Shapovalov was coming off a positive COVID test, you almost forget. And he wasn't ready to go that first day. And uh, it, it was a tough spot for Braden Schnur to be thrust into the competition, facing a huge serving John Isner in your first match of the season. So Canada was already behind the eight ball in that initial group stage. So recovering from that was massive. You'd think Shapovalov, Oceania, would be 
a big underdog in that doubles match, as you mentioned, against Jamie Murray and Salisbury. But to, to come through that one, 6-4, 6-1, and, and then really pick up steam, especially when they got to the semifinals. Denis Shapovalov played that wild back-and-forth match with Roman Safulin, who was kind of playing out of his mind all week. He's outside the top 150, but this could be another young rising star that maybe breaks inside the top 100 this season. Uh, Daniil Medvedev looked quite unbeatable all week, uh, apart from a loss to Ugo Bear early on. Um, Felix, I, I think if we're treating that one as a measuring stick, Felix is still a little bit behind the world number two. But, you know, pretty much all the... Pretty much all of the tour is is a little bit behind in steps uh, to Medvedev. So, as you said, I think this is a key step for for both of them. And Denis Shapovalov, we go to that final, beating Pablo Carreño Busta, to me, is a, a massive step forward. Someone he was one and four against in his head-to-head. Yeah, I mean, who thought we were going to go and and take both those singles matches in straight sets because I certainly didn't. And that's uh, that's more so speaking to the strength of the Spanish team, even without Nadal there, having guys like RBA and Pablo Carreño Busta who are just so strong. Um, that's a great combination as well. But look what we've proven. Uh, Dennis and Felix have showed that uh, they are as formidable a one-two punch as any nation in men's tennis. And uh, after the event concluded, I was speaking with Roberto Bautista Agu in uh, the Team Spain's final post-match press conference, and he echoed that sentiment, saying that having those two guys who are both really like number one guys, um, that Canada should be contending in these types of events for years to come. And that's, you know, something that's fantastic for Canadian tennis fans to hear. It's great for you and me to hear that kind of a comment coming from such an established player like, like RBA. Yeah, and look, um, I, I was tooting his horn all through the week as well because Roberto Bautista Gut before that finals against Canada, he was four and zero in singles, and you know he the, the players he was defeating no slouches either. He beat Casper Ruud in straight sets. He had an epic win over Hubert Hurkacz seven six in the third. A lot of people were calling that I think the match of the tournament, and Pablo Carreño Busta was absolutely rock solid as well, notching some key key wins for Spain. So it was. You know, already you mentioned two strong players, but two players, you know, peaking and in completely strong, strong form, playing their best tennis. And to me, those matchups, you look at Felix versus RBA, Dennis versus PCB, the Spain side of that matchup to me, it's like two guys who have such a steady and solid floor. They're always really, really rock solid and strong. And then Dennis and Felix have the higher ceiling when they can, you know, get to that next level, they can hit you off the court. And that's, and that's what they did. And that that's why I think we're so excited about our Canadian prospects and what these guys can do in their careers. I was really fortunate to be able to join uh, Canada's post-match press conference as well. And uh, I don't know if it was the early hour, it was around 6 a.m. Eastern time, but uh, there were not too many journalists in there. Uh, So I was able to uh, sort of get comfortable, sit down and and fire away a few questions, which I was more than happy to do. Um, I'll share that with our listeners now, and then we'll kind of comment a little bit about some of the the moments, both serious ones and the lighthearted ones from uh, my questions to both Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime. You guys have grown up together to have this great run run alongside each other. You've been friends for a long time, uh, not just like regular co-workers for sure. What does it mean to do this uh, side by side? Yeah, like Dennis said, it's pretty cool to to, to look back. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we, we go way back. I mean, the memory that comes to, to mind is, you know, we won the Junior Davis Cup in 2015 together. And it was, yeah, it was the first time we won something uh, significant, you know, for, for our countries and, and for our personal careers at that age and uh, you know we've been uh, believing and dreaming for for a long time uh, pushing each other as well and uh, I think we just you know we elevate each other uh, and and, in a really positive and good way so like you said to think back on those first memories to to now being able to to live the biggest team trophies in in the sport is, is something truly special um and uh you know the 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 this is possible I think this just means that you know, we grew up in, uh, in you know, in cities in, in, in Canada, like uh, like a lot of our peers, like a lot of, of our friends. And, you know, now we're standing here with uh, one of the biggest trophy in tennis. So, uh, you know, it's really possible. You guys have your regular doubles partners on the ATP Tour, but you showed us this week what you're capable of when you're teaming up alongside one another. As you mentioned, success in the juniors as well. Is it possible, Felix and Dennis, that we might see you guys play the occasional tournament together uh, when your regular uh, partners aren't there? I mean, 
whenever Bopana decides to retire, I guess. <laughs> you may have lost Bopana to Romanathan yeah, this week, true. bro. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe I just lost my partner, so for sure. <laughs> for sure, coming out, we'll play some double. <laughs> oh, we sure could. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, hey, Milos and Vashik weren't able to play this event this year, but they've both kind of shown all you guys the ropes in a sense in terms of growing up and representing Canada in international play. Even though they're not here, how big an impact have both those guys had in helping develop uh, tennis in, in our nation? For sure, I think they had, a, they had an important impact. Uh, they put a lot of belief in, in other players that, you know, that's something you could do, being a professional tennis player and play at the highest stages in the sport. I remember Milos, you know, making... Uh, you know, when he first made the round of 16s in Australia, things like this. I mean, uh, yeah, definitely put uh, stars in, in my eyes when I was a kid. Um, and I think now we, we just show that this country not only has, you know, great players, but it has, uh, uh, you know, uh, it has a lot you know, of good players, a lot of players that can compete at the highest level on the tour. I mean, like you said, there's Milos and, and Vasek uh, missing, but, you know, here we are with, with this trophy. So. Uh, if we had, you know, all of our players would be, you know, we're a great nation of tennis. I think we, we, we've uh, proved that for sure now, and, and it has to keep going. There you have it, Mike and Press speaking with Team Canada and Felix and Dennis, um, who I, I hope can use this as a spring for, springboard for a great 2022. And um, I, I think you did a great job in the questioning just discussing how these two friends have, have kind of grown up alongside one another as teammates. Really, it's, it's kind of been a friendship and they've been teammates for Canada for such a long time. Yeah, and they both sort of clung to that, um, you know, that storyline. Uh, they were both happy to mention, you know, just what it meant to each of them to be able to uh, enjoy this together and have this moment mm -hmm. together, which was nice. Um, a couple of my other favorite moments that were sort of off microphone, but uh, first of all, one was kind of funny on the way in when they were sitting down, Felix had a beverage in his hand and uh, he just made it clear before the official question started. Uh, it's, it's not a beer. Don't worry. He said, it's, it's not <laughs> a beer. Um, you, you know, obviously he's old enough to have one. So it's just kind of cute that, uh, that he was being, you know, um, you know, preemptive on that to make sure nobody <laughs> thought he was having one. Um, and second of all was Dennis was fielding the very first question of the press conference from the moderator. And while this was happening, I had an eye on Felix and he was just sort of examining the trophy and like looking it up and down and reading the previous names that were on there. And it was almost sort of like, you know, looking at it with a childlike uh, curiosity. And it just kind of struck me like, yeah, this is his first major trophy uh, in singles as a professional tennis player. And you could tell it really meant something to him. Uh, and I've got a feeling that by the end of this calendar year, we'll be talking about uh, possibly a couple other trophies that he'll be adding um, to his mantle, because I think this is the year where that breakout is going to happen in terms of, I mean, he's already in the top 10, so he's had a breakout, yeah. but in terms of getting that, uh, that first uh, trophy win, um, the guys seemed loose. The guys seemed really happy. And you could tell there was a real camaraderie there, including Braden Schnur, who answered his first question by saying, yeah, I've been carrying these guys on my back for the last eight days. So yeah, that know. was, that was maybe my favorite quote of the press conference, to be honest, that was, that was absolutely hilarious, but, um, yeah. And, and you mentioned that's a good point actually, because both, both, I think Braden Schnur and Steven Diaz talked about, even if they didn't spend much time on the court and, and Schnur had that singles loss to John Isner, even being in that team environment around Dennis, around Felix, the way they were playing so well, I do think those guys can, can feed off that energy and maybe in a, in a sense, it will help them for, for 2022 and beyond. And, and both of those guys, I think are looking for bounce back years. We've seen Braden Schnur around the cusp of top hundred, making an ATP final in New York a few years ago. So maybe they'll be motivated by this title in, in some way as well. Yeah. And hopefully for Braden, who's in Aussie open uh, qualifying, you know, might spur him on to make the main draw there as well. So any rate, great way for Canada to start the 22, 22 season. Couldn't have gone any better. And uh, I, there can only be, you know, positive, tangible, benefits side benefits that now come from that result um we got a lot more canadian tennis to talk about and and we've got a big guest on the podcast this week who you were able to sit down with and and fire away a few questions about canadian tennis and also the uh, the current situation with world number one novak djokovic so uh why don't you do a little lead in here of your chat with renee stubbs 
Yeah, well, I, I thought it was firstly perfect to get an Australian onto the show at the time where all the tennis is, of course, happening down under. We have this ongoing saga with the world number one Novak Djokovic and the government of Australia. We're focused on all those tournaments there. And to me, not only was she a, was she a world-class doubles player, she has the connection to Jeannie Bouchard um, in a coaching role from a couple of years ago. And she's such a strong commentator on ESPN. I did speak to Renee Stubbs a couple of years ago as well, uh, but great to have her back on the show um we covered quite a lot of ground especially with the incident in australia between djokovic and the government and i'll let you guys listen in here's my interview with former world number one in doubles australian renee stubbs you are listening to match point canada the official podcast of tennis canada and our guest this week one of the greatest doubles champions of our sport she was world number one in doubles six total grand slams including the 2000 australian open doubles and mixed doubles crowns in her home country she's also spent time coaching high profile players such as our canadian Jeannie bouchard and sam stoser she's a current commentator for espn she's also host of the racket magazine tennis podcast so happy to welcome uh, Renee Stubbs back to the podcast after, after a couple of years. Renee, thanks so much uh, for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a delight. And Renee, you know, 2022, we're just one week in. I'll say Happy New Year as well. And, and we're already into one of the most, I think, extraordinary stories I've ever followed in this sport. And I think that's really the place to start. I've been calling it Novak Djokovic versus Australia. And, <laughs> you know, you're, of course, Australian. The people, they always strike me as friendly, kind, charming, funny people. Um, maybe you have a pulse of just how Australians are feeling um, through this, you know, international saga and, and what's transpired with Djokovic uh, failing to, to get into the country and currently awaiting trial. Well, he's uh, obviously, as we are speaking, he is literally about to start this court case for allowing him to stay in the country. He's obviously in the country. He's been detained in a pretty uh, awful uh, hotel over the last few days. Um, you know, look, Ben, I think that this We'll, we'll come down. We're going to find a lot uh, out uh, today about the paperwork, about what was submitted, what was his medical exemption. Obviously, I think it's under the COVID that he's had COVID in the last six months. I think questions will be asked about when that was, when he had COVID. There's public you know, outcry in the fact that he was outside and um, entertaining around with people when he was said to have had COVID. So, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of really what the real story is here. I obviously think that, Tennis Australia went above and beyond trying to get the strongest field here to the Australian Open. They did whatever they could to do that. They obviously were asked to give medical exemptions because there were players that are anti-vax or don't want to have the vaccine or have an issue medically where they can't have a vaccine. So they went above and beyond to try and get that. They had two panels, medical experts here in Victoria to allow them to try and you know, make sure that it was all done correctly. I think there was 28 people that went for the medical exemption and only, you know, a handful were allowed to enter the country because of that. So, you know, when you think about it, there was quite a lot that wanted it that didn't get it. He obviously, Novak being one of them, um, was a, allowed the medical exemption under the panels here in Victoria. And then the federal government came down and said, absolutely not as soon as he landed. Um, so I think those goalposts were changed in uh, a matter of days, to be honest. I know that the paperwork says that the government said that people were not allowed to be in the country if they had COVID in the previous six months. But there were players that were allowed into this country um, that have since been deported um, that were allowed into the country. So why did that all of a sudden change in a couple of days? Only, um, only a pollster will be able to tell you that, I would say, because I would say the federal government saw that there was a very big backlash in letting people into the country that weren't vaccinated. Yeah, and it, it's sort of hard at this point, and, and we're going to learn more information of, of the channels of communication of what's happened here with Tennis Australia, the Victorian government, uh, the federal government, what happens at the border as you're trying to enter the country. And and Craig Tiley, uh, leading Tennis Australia, he's always struck me as you know an astute, intelligent individual. And I, I know you've had a relationship with him as, as well. Is it possible he's, he's made some type of clerical error or some error in the line of communication? because surely he wouldn't have been uh, so keen to pass medical exemptions for players if he had known there, there's no chance they can enter the country. 
Absolutely. I think you just answered your own question. And I think that um, as far as I know, um, Craig is a is a, a very astute human being, as you said, and he's a fastidious note taker. So he will have all this documented. And I think that's why we haven't heard from him over the last few days since we know, knew it was going to court. I think his, uh, his advisors around him were like, quiet, no more from you. Let's keep it quiet. Let's show the evidence of what you have to the court on uh, Monday and see where we come out on this. But I, I do believe that as far as I know, Craig was very, very specific in asking the questions on those medical exemptions a couple of times. He very much stressed it because he knew what could possibly happen. And he was told that they were that it was all okay. Then I think what's happened is that they, they've been told that that was a junior staffer in the federal government that, that allowed that to happen. And he's like, kind of like, whoa, how is that my problem? Um, so, it, and, and Craig's in a very different situation because Tennis Australia obviously needs a lot of federal, a lot of state government money to put on the Australian Open. A lot of the facilities here um, have been paid for by the Victorian government. So it's very hard dichotomy that he's in because he can't really throw under the bus the, the government because he really needs them a lot to put on the Australian Open. So he's in a he's in a really tough time and obviously he wants to please someone like Novak Djokovic who he wants to have come back here many, many times. So I think he's in a very tough situation and I think he's lost a lot of sleep. But I can't imagine Craig making a clerical error that enormous. Yeah, and uh, look, to, to follow up on someone who's who's in a tough time, uh, just what Novak Djokovic has obviously gone through uh, through the past week, whether you are for or against him as an athlete, no doubt. I, I think he's uh, been thrown to the wolves in a sense and has had a, a very difficult go. I, I'm sure staying in this hotel, um, you know, uh, away from his family. He seems like such a polarizing figure, I, I think, right now in Australia for the sporting world in, in general, do you think he's going to be welcome back with open arms if he does return to the Australian Open? Do you wonder, will he want to come back to a place where, you know, he's, he's won nine times? Well, there's no doubt he wants to come back or he would have been on a first class or private plane out of Australia. I mean, if that was me and um, I didn't feel welcome and I didn't want to play, I would have been, and I was that wealthy, I would have been packing my bags and onto a private plane out of the country. But mm-hmm. he's obviously put himself through this, you know, staying in this uh, pretty average hotel conditions. Um, He's fighting this in court. So he clearly wants to play the Australian Open. Um, So I think as far as being welcomed by the public, I think it'll be very mixed. I think he'll have a little bit more sympathy now, to be quite honest with you. I think it's a few more people that have sort of gone, oh, gosh, you know, kind of feel bad for the guy now. There's a major. I would say the majority still will be very parochial against him um, when he walks onto the court, um, you know, hopefully uh, next week he does get a chance to play. But And if he does, I think he'll find it, it's not, not going to be o- overly welcoming um, for him. Particularly, Ben, you have to understand here in Victoria, it's no question that um, Melbourne has had the hardest lockdown in the world. Um, the amount of lockdown days that Victorians have experienced is just outrageous. And, you know, you're in Canada, you know what um, lockdown laws are all about. And Australians and Canadians are very similar. We're law-abiding citizens. We do do the right thing by our fellow um, you know, um, Australians or Canadians and the Americans, that's a whole different story. I mean, there's so much divide in that country. I live in the United States and it's a very different sort of, you know, um, independent thinking, you know, I'm going to do it my way sort of thing. Right. Whereas Australians and Canadians are very much law abiding, government abiding citizens. And we have been like that here in Australia. So that's where it's really tough for people in this particular city to, to, to sort of stand back and go, wait a second, I haven't even seen my, my elderly parents who live in another state, <laughs> let alone allowing an international superstar into the country unvaccinated. So you can see where the sort of, um, the anger lies with people in this country. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, I, I'm kind of operating under the assumption at this point that that he's likely not going to be playing. And, and if we talk some tennis, at least, that's what I've been wanting to do. It's been hard to do over the past week. But uh, with the uh, obviously the favorite and defending champion and nine time winner out, um, that changes the landscape of the men's draw a lot. If you're looking at the men's field without a Novak Djokovic, are you pointing to any particular favorite? Well, I think it's pretty obvious where the next one lies, and that would be Medvedev. I mean, he made the final here last year. He plays great on hard court. The court 
court speed is a medium, um, medium quick, not so quick. Last year was very, very fast. This year it's not quite as fast. So I really put Medvedev in that. Um, I think he'll be the favourite if Novak doesn't play. And then, of course, Rafa, we'll see how he goes. He just won a tournament yesterday, so he's obviously hitting the ball well. I've seen him around the courts a lot. He looks happy, he looks relaxed. Um, and he looks fit, and a fit Novak, uh, a fit Nadal is a uh, is a tough Nadal to beat here. And the court surface being a bit slower, that definitely helps him more than it would have last year. Um, so I would say those two. There's no question. Zverev, you have to put him in there, and of course Berrettini and all these other players. Um, so yeah, and I would say on the women's side, you know, it's a <laughs> it's a pick 'em as as it has been over the past you know two or three years. Um, we'll see how Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu do after their amazing US Open runs, um, obviously eyes on them, particularly from Canada, um, and more pressure on their shoulders now as young up upstarts. And, you know, Simona Halep won a tournament yesterday, Anissa Mova won a tournament yesterday, and she looked great. Of course, Ash Barty is probably the favourite to go into the tournament. Um, she just won a tournament in Adelaide, and the court surface is perfect for her. And Naomi Osaka, still a bit of a question. She looked unbelievable in her couple of matches here. Um, leading into the Australian Open, pulled out with a, I wouldn't say it's an injury. I would say it's more along the lines of just being precautionary because um, she hasn't played back-to-back -back matches like that in a while and probably came up a bit sore. So there is a question mark on her fitness level. Can she get through seven matches, um, having not done that for a while? But boy, oh boy, if she's fit, my goodness, she looked good the, uh, in her matches the other day. Yeah, and she always seems so comfortable playing uh, down under in Australia. The women's field is so compelling to me. Ash Barty, such a strong world number one. And as you mentioned, opening the season with the title. Do, do you think she's the type of player she's able to compartmentalize the pressure of, of trying to win a home event like the Australian Open, which is, I, I'm sure is such a big goal for her? Oh, absolutely. I think she would have learned a lot over the last couple of years playing here about how to manage that expectation and the press and the people. Um, but I think after winning Wimbledon last year, and believe it or not, Ben, I think that this, I think that was probably the most stressful um, moments for her to win Wimbledon because I think there was a lot of pressure on her shoulders. I think she was the overwhelming favourite, you know, in her semi-final and final, and she came out through those matches and she played a very tough Carolina Pliskova in the final and didn't quite finish it off in straight sets the way she should have. And then to be able to back it up and win that third set the way she did, I think that showed her fortitude. And I think that showed her calmness under duress. And so having experienced the last couple of years here, and then also what she went through at Wimbledon, I think she's so ready to win this tournament this year. And as I said, the, the court surface is absolutely perfect for her. The ball's bouncing up quite well. It's favouring good serving, but it's also favouring the slice. It does stay low. So she's going to be a nightmare to, to beat on this court. Unless somebody can come into the net and be aggressive against her, she's going to make everybody's life a nightmare. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Layla Fernandez as well, who we had a chance to speak to uh, just at the front end of the season, and, and she's setting high goals for herself, as, as she always does. I wanted to ask you about one other Canadian who you've chatted uh, before in the past on your podcast, too, is Bianca Andrescu. Um, she's taking a break from this first portion of the season, not heading down to Australia, and, and she's someone who's been quite open about, I, I think, challenges in mental health, um, challenges of, of going through, you know, physical struggles, obviously, after winning that 2019 US Open title. What are your thoughts on her abilities to hopefully bounce back and, and her chances to, to once again rise to the top of the game? Yeah, she's got to find the joy. And that's what I talk to with every player that I ever work with, um, whether it be they're having a hard time with just motivating or stresses or whatever. And I said, look, if you don't have joy, there's no point in doing this sport because it's really, really, really tough. And people might think, oh, they see the money and they see the notoriety that these players have. But really, it's a very stressful um, environment, particularly when you're as big a superstar as Bianca is in, in Canada or in tennis in general. Um, and she's such an exciting talent. She's so good. So I think the bottom line is, Look, Ash Barty is a perfect example of if you are not ready or do not want to play, don't play. You know, find that joy and come back. Look, Ash took almost the whole entire pandemic off in 20. Well, she did in 2020, didn't mm -hmm. even play at all and came back and <laughs> won five or six events and won Wimbledon as world number one and cruising along. So I think Bianca probably looked at that as well and thought mm, maybe if, you know, Ash can do it, literally retire, come back, become world number one, take an entire year off stay number one, win Wimbledon. It's, it's a good indicator for all kids, all young 
women or men, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, don't do it. When you find the joy, get out there and really work hard and get get back there. And I think she'll find that eventually. I, I also have to ask you about uh, Jeannie Bouchard, who I mentioned off the top that that you worked uh, closely with uh, as a coach, and uh, she's been working hard rehabbing her shoulder injury, looking to get back on the court. H- have you had any recent conversations with Jeannie a- at all? Are you two still in touch? Yeah, we talk all the time. Uh, we text all the time. I'm always checking in. I see her videos that she does on Instagram and, you know, watching her progress on that. And so I'll, you know, send her a, a text and how's the shoulder? Have you started serving? And, you know, critique her her, 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 her back end or forehand or sometimes, you know, sort of like still coaching her from afar. So, yeah, we still have a great relationship. Um, Jeannie's a great kid, uh, hard worker. I'm excited for her to get back and as long as she's pain-free because I know she had that shoulder problem throughout our coaching um, player tenure and it was a real problem every day trying to manage it. So um, so she do, she's done the right thing. It's not an easy surgery to come back from. You've got to really take your time. You've got to really put in the rehab and she knows that. I've told her it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. She's still young. She's got a lot of years left of great tennis. So um, hopefully once she's back ready to go, she'll uh, come back playing great. And um, she finished before the surgery, starting to get her form back. And um, I have no doubt that she'll be back, um, you know, back inside the top 50 um, within a year uh, or certainly a two of coming back from the, the rehab. Yeah. And we're certainly going to be following her progress closely. Uh, I wanted to finish with one segment we sometimes do with our guests. It's called rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better, Renee. So we have a handful for you to wrap. Um, first question, are you a morning or night person? I am definitely a night person. Really? Okay. All right. Uh, follow up to that. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Australian. Australian coffee. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, Would you call yourself more an introvert or an extrovert? I think if anyone knows me, they know the answer to that one. That's an extrovert. (laughs) Who is or was your favorite tennis player to watch? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, When I was growing up, Bjorn Borg was my favorite player of all time. Um, He was my idol. Martina Navratilova was my idol. Um, So I'd say those two. And then um, now I just... Wow, there's so many great players that I, I loved commentating again when I when Aga Radwanska played, you know, the magician I used to call her. Um, I love watching Roger. So, yeah, I, I love tennis in general. I love watching all players, especially the fun ones. Angebeur is one of my favorites. Oh, she's a lot of fun. Um, if you could borrow anybody's tennis shot in the game, oh. whose would it be and why? Boy, um, I think at her very best, uh, I would have killed to have Sam Stokes' forehand. <laughs> if I'd had Sam's forehand, I might have been a really good player. <laughs> <laughs> big, big weapon there. Um, yeah. For you, most special title of your career, if you could name one. Oh, that's like naming a favorite child. Um, <laughs> but, you know, winning my first here, uh, my first Grand Slam here in Australia, the doubles here probably was my most memorable um, win and match. Um, but... You know, all those Grand Slam titles, they're all pretty special on their own. And last one for you. Who is your biggest role model? Billie Jean King. Um, She's just, you know, somebody that I just admire still to this day. And if I need any advice or want any advice, I'll call Billie up because she always gives me the best advice. And um, so I would say Billie Jean King. Renee, it's always a pleasure to have you on Matchpoint Canada. We can't wait to as well follow your coverage uh, in the booth commentating uh, down under at the Australian Open. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. There you have it. My conversation with Renee Stubbs. Love her choice of role model, Billie Jean Jean King. And I kind of like the comparable as well uh, with Australians and Canadians that we're sort of law abiding. And in a sense, we are probably treating the serious of um, the seriousness of vaccination in in a similar way. And of course, that's played such a big role, central role to the storyline involving world number one, Novak Djokovic. We can acknowledge he would be in the country right now competing at the Australian Open and gearing up ready to play if he were vaccinated. That's not the case. And, and currently it's a court case instead. And he's has an ongoing hearing um, against the government. And we have to see what transpires now. Yeah, what an absolute mess and detraction from all the positive things that we should be talking about. Mm-hmm. The tennis should be, you know, bringing to the table for people to connect with the sport as the season kicks off. And instead, we have to deal with this. 
And, you know, I don't want to belabor it because I feel like you and Renee really covered it so well. Um, but, you know, just what I want to add is, um, you know, first of all, me personally, I'm vaccinated. My family's vaccinated. My wife is a nurse at the Children's Hospital here in Toronto. So you can imagine what side of that coin I'm on. But for all those people out there that are saying, well, Novak could have avoided this whole mess. It's true, but I don't think that necessarily relates to what the current situation is. When he was given the green light to come to Australia to play in the tournament thinking he had his medical exemption. And I'm not going to debate the validity of that exemption or whether I feel comfortable with that exemption. If he was granted that and told by Craig Tiley to get on a plane and come on down to play the tournament and get one of the few exemptions that we're handing out, then he was doing what he was told was within his rights. Um, and this seems like such a polarizing and such a divisive issue. And so many people are either on like one extreme or the other extreme. And it seems yes. like there's hardly any room to be in the middle. I like being in the middle. And I don't know if it's because I got three kids at home and I've always got to sit on the fence with them. But I try and take a more of a, a balanced approach to things. And uh, I feel like the people who are making the most noise are the ones that are going one side or the other. And I'd like to think there's hopefully a lot of tennis fans who are yeah in that middle range. I don't think there's going to be a lot of sympathy for him if he does end up playing the Australian Open because Australians do seem to be quite... Um, upset about this whole sort of debacle, which is blown up as it has. Mm -hmm. uh, but for Novak in particular, I'm not going to spend my time on this podcast talking about what decision he should make about getting vaccinated. Um, but I do think if he's given the thumbs up to come to Australia, it's kind of putting them in, a, in an unfair position, to be honest. And that's, um, I don't know if that sounds, I'm being sympathetic to him, but I just feel like, yeah. That's all I got to say about that. Let's just leave it there, I guess. Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I'm with you in that there are a lot of gray areas in, in this case. It's not black or white. And I will absolutely extend my sympathy to the fact that it is unfair if he was granted documents saying you have a medical exemption, you can come and compete at the Australian Open and just travel 16 hours to Australia with said documents you've told are going to get you into the country and be detained, denied entry, um, kept in a room for eight hours, and now you're thrown up into a hotel. I, I do feel bad for that, that entire scenario and how it's played out, and I do think it is unfair. I do think Djokovic, for whatever reason, is often vilified by the media. I you know, it, it's not a big deal if, if well, we well, see how many other people who were given a medical exemption are being, you know, lambasted like he is right now. Of course. And, I can't you know, even name them all. I don't even the, know who the they others, are. Right? The others, exactly. The others who have been given that medical exemption, we don't really know their names. And I, there was a Czech player who actually got their medical exemption, got into the country, had played for a week, and then suddenly they gave her the boot out, which seems like a, a major reversal, of course, trying to save face. So I do think this issue has been politicized. I don't mm -hmm. think it's a great look that the Prime Minister of Australia is bothering to comment and discuss uh, one single case of the border because it is the world number one tennis player. That tells me he's trying to score political points. So I, I don't love those aspects of it. At the same time, Novak Djokovic knew months ago uh, probably the situation of trying to get into Australia requiring vaccination or seeking a loophole, which was maybe never a guarantee. So that is his mistake. I don't think he should be in the situation he's in now. And I, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, you and Renee talked about so many other fantastic things too. So let's focus a little <laughs> bit on the, the tennis parts of your great interview with her and fantastic to have her back on the podcast. And it saved you and me from having to put on an Australian accent. So that was you know, great to have <laughs> the, authentic, the authentic voice there. And she's yeah. such a respected person, um, you know, not just because of her on-court accomplishments, but she's really um, you know, settled into the role on the other side of things in the media quite well. So good to have her back. That's a great connection you've got there, Ben. So thanks for bringing her on board. Um, I was intrigued by um, her chatting about Jeannie Bouchard, who mm -hmm. we hope is getting closer to returning to the court. And I, I found it kind of funny how she's also following Jeannie's Instagram and watching all the videos <laughs> like the rest of the world, probably. Um, did you get the vibe that, I mean, they're still in correspondence, obviously, she said that. Did you get the vibe that that meant she might continue to be coaching her when Jeannie's back or, or do you think that ship was sailed? I wasn't clear on uh, exactly where they stood on that one. Yeah, it, it was clear to me that, that currently she's not an acting coach of Jeannie Bouchard, but they're friendly. They have a relationship and they're, they're staying in touch discussing her tennis, but maybe the door is open down the road when Jeannie is back on tour playing regularly, that there is a possibility that that window opens and Renee, um, 
would become a coach for Jeannie Bouchard. I, I imagine Jeannie would want someone full-time and you have a discussion of a travel commitment. Would Renee Stubbs be able to do something like that? Um, of course, I think her coaching partnership with Sam Stoser has been maybe easier. They're both Australian. They can work those travel details out a little bit more easily perhaps, but uh yeah, I, I don't think the door has completely closed on maybe further uh, a further partnership there. But I got the sense that uh, she, she's not acting as a coach right now, but more as right. a friend, and they're simply in touch. Right. Well, and Sam Stozer's hanging it up, I believe, isn't she? She uh, is at the, the end of the Australian Open. Open. So yep. uh, that could free Renee up, I suppose. And uh, the two of them, Jeannie and Renee, really seemed to click when they did work together because Jeannie was really coming along. Oh yeah, moving back towards the top one hundred. It was great mm-hmm. to hear Renee think she's got top fifty potential still. So that. That was nice. Um, I also enjoyed your rapid fire questions. I was waiting for it. It was getting kind of late as I was listening to <laughs> your audio. I'm like, oh my in? God, is he is he going to yeah. do this or not? And you yeah. did. And uh, I liked hearing the name Ega Rudwanska as mm-hmm. one of the players that she really enjoyed. Because Ega Rudwanska is one of my favorite players for sure. And uh, just what a fun game to watch. And uh, I kind of thought she hung up the racket a little bit too soon. But uh, that, that was neat and unexpected. Yeah, for for whatever reason, that's a name that maybe we don't bring up as often as we should, reflecting back on on fantastic players that we had earlier in the 2000s. Someone who didn't quite win a Grand Slam title in singles, but was uh, close a handful of times. And yeah, a magician on the court. So that was fun to hear her mention that. Uh, We touched on, and uh, I'll shift back to some of the tournaments of the week. We did touch on Rafael Nadal, who I was honestly a, a little surprised that she named him as the number two contender at the Australian Open, if Djokovic doesn't play, I think Daniil Medvedev has to hands down be number one. And then for me, it was going to be Zverev and then maybe Nadal. But uh, Nadal came back um, playing his first tournament in several months and winning his 89th career title at the Melbourne Somerset. Defeated Servan Volier, Maxime Cressy, kind of an American throwback player who had wins over Grigor Dimitrov and Riley Opelka this week. So he had a, a great week. Um, most impressive stat to me here of Nadal's title. It wasn't particularly difficult in terms of competition, but that's 19 straight years now where Nadal has won at least one title. Um, And not only does that speak to longevity, I'm more amazed that he's managed that stat given all the injuries he's dealt with over his career. Yeah, absolutely right. That's just mind boggling. Not that he's done it for 19 years if he's healthy and we all know what he's capable of. But the fact that, as you said, he's had to navigate all of those um, issues with with his physical um, health over the years. So unbelievable. So 89th career title. He's only what? Like, is that 20 behind Jimmy Connors? Which That's uh, right. 20 behind Jimmy. And I, I think Roger might be 104 right now. 104, yeah. 105. So. And if this was heyday, Rafa Nadal, you know, he could pick up those 20 titles in like two clay court swings if he just hang around <laughs> for another couple of years. Now it's a little bit more difficult for him. But for me, it's just great to see him back and, and mm-hmm. healthy on court. And, uh, you know, is he one of the top contenders? Absolutely. Uh, I'm not ready for my Aussie Open predictions yet, so I'm not sure we'll where I'm going to slot him in there. But just great to see him back there. And in terms of motivation, I mean, he wants number 21 just as bad as Novak, just as bad as a healthy Roger would want if he was on tour. So I think that is going to give him extra um, yeah, you know, gumption to just push a little bit harder, even for Rafa to try and make that happen. I think we all kind of assumed that it would be Novak who would get there first. Um, maybe even wondering if the other two would be able to get there. I think for Roger, that seems pretty unlikely right now. Um, but uh, I mean, first of all, if, if Djokovic doesn't get to play the Aussie Open, uh, if Nadal doesn't do it here, he's got the French Open as the next slam. Yep. Um, which, although people are going to say, well, Djokovic beat him last year. But anyhow, it's up. It's up there, right? It's uh, who knows which one of the two is, is going to be able to do it. Um, but imagine Nadal doing it at the Aussie Open. That would be a little bit unexpected. Yeah, certainly. And he, he wasn't hasn't won there since 2009, his lone title at the Australian Open. He's lost four other finals, but that would be a pretty unbelievable story and, and unexpected, but certainly within the realm of possibility. I'll mention just the event in Adelaide on the men's side. Gael Monfils picking up a title, defeating Karen Hatchinoff 6-4, 6-4. Two guys over the age of 35 winning this week. Uh, uh, Nadal and Malfis, who uh, it's great to see him playing some good tennis again. He had such a rough stretch on the return from the pandemic. Uh, he had been inside the top 10, looked like he was closing near the top five after that pandemic hit. He really struggled for several months. So great to see him play well again. We'll go over to the women's side. Layla Annie Fernandez playing her first event of 2022. Mike, of course, you had the opportunity to chat with her just last week. She started off strong with the victory, then ran into the Roland Garros champion of 2020. 
funny Iga Sviantek, who honestly, if if you get a chance to watch these highlights, she was pretty flawless, like unbelievable ball striking from the baseline. She uh, beat Layla 6-1, 6-2. I don't have much concern here over the loss from Layla. Sviantek played great, um, but I, I'm excited to see what Fernandez can do at the first slam of the season with so much more expectations uh, surrounding her. Yeah, I think all of Canada and her fans worldwide, among which there are many, are excited to see what her follow-up to that U.S. Open final will be at the the, the, the slam that we have coming up here in Melbourne. Um, not a bad start at beating Ekaterina Alexandrova, who's a, a, a top 40, top 30 type player. Um, and as you said, Sviantek really took it to her. Although afterwards, I, you know, I think it seems like there, there is something up with Fernandez, uh, hopefully something minor, but there were some uh, people alluding that there was some sort of a, an injury there. She withdrew from her doubles match where she was supposed to play with uh, Canadian slash uh, New Zealand's uh, Aaron Routliff. Uh, as they had played and won their first match together, they withdrew before playing against the Aussie duo, um, who they were supposed to uh, face next, including Sam Stozer. Um, and she is not playing this week. I forget which of the you know two dozen Aussie warm-up Sydney, tournaments. Sydney Tennis Classic, I think, is the you. one she pulled out of. Yep. So precautionary reasons, I believe, but she pulled out there mm-hmm. too. So hopefully it's something minor uh, and that she's all set for the Aussie Open in a week's time. Um, did get a chance to talk to her, which was great, uh, just before she played her first match in Adelaide. And Layla Annie's always been very gracious with her time with us. Uh, right off the bat, before I hit record, I, I did just want to ask her, you know, hey, since you've sort of made it big time here, are we still going with Layla Annie? Because in more and more places, I just see you mentioned as Layla Fernandez, including even on the WTA uh, website on her player page, it only says Layla Fernandez, but she says, nope. It's Layla Annie. That's what she still wants to hear. So that's what we'll continue to refer to her as, of course. And uh, we'll have her on anytime because she's just uh, fantastic with us and opened up about her offseason, spending a lot of time with her family, uh, a lot of time with her younger sister, Bianca Jolie Fernandez, uh, who's also an aspiring tennis player at 17 years old. Got to catch her older sister's wedding, which was really nice and something that during a tennis season might not be able to be accomplished. And, um, I don't know what part of the interview you found uh, the most interesting, but uh, to me, it's uh, just that continued drive to make the top level of women's tennis, wanting to make that top 10 this year. Yeah, yeah, certainly hearing her goal setting for the year was was great. And and obviously her deep, deep connection and relationship with her family and, and her father and her younger sister, who I should mention, I believe is already inside the top 1000 of the rankings. I understand that that doesn't sound you know, unbelievable or anything, but she's still at a very, very young age. So if you can imagine in a few years time, no pressure, if we have another Bianca kicking on the tour, that's Canadian and doing well, uh, what a storyline that would be, but hearing, uh, obviously her relationship with her family, getting, uh, some time off a little break from tennis, but still locked in and focused. And, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that she isn't over that U S open loss. She she didn't just come out of that and think like, well, finals was nice. Um, I, I'm satisfied with that. No, she wants more. She's hungrier for so much more. Uh, she wants a Grand Slam. She wants more titles. She wants to be playing at the WTA finals at the biggest events. And uh, I can't wait to see her do everything she possibly can to make that happen. Uh, we'll discuss just a little more Adelaide International. Ash Barty, she's the world number one for a reason. She opens her 2022 with the title. She beat Elena Rabakina in the final uh, 6-3, 6-2. She was in trouble in this tournament earlier, trailing Coco Goff, I believe, by a set and a break, rallied past Goff, and then gets all the way to the finals and wins. She also beats uh, Sviantek in the semifinals, so great start to the season for Barty. She has to be a top contender, I think, at the Australian Open. We'll discuss that, obviously, the next episode. And wouldn't they go crazy if she was able to win the uh, the first slam of the year in her home country? That would really be something special. Uh, a couple other names, uh, trophy winners early in the season, and uh, I gotta say, all the, the trophy winners, all the, the champions at the beginning of the year are some pretty established players. Uh, Simona Halep uh, winning her first title since Rome 2020, which I can't believe that was the last time mm-hmm. she won a title, but uh, did have some uh, injury issues and took some time off during the pandemic as well, I believe, if memory serves correctly. And uh, one of the players that you pegged for success in 2022. So uh, tip of the hat to Ben here, Amanda Anisimova was vic- victorious in three sets um, over Sasnovich. And uh, that was a, a crazy match where she had to come back uh, from a couple of holes, including, uh, I believe, what, Love 3 or something along those lines. In the final set, she moves up 18 places to number 60, and you've got her 
uh, targeted for top 20. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw her there either by the end of this calendar year. Yeah, well, what a start to the season. I, I think sometimes we have short-term memory in tennis. We forget how phenomenal a player she looked to be just a few seasons ago and when she was soaring up the tour. And uh, she got to a career high, I believe, number 21. Um, it, it's so rare that I have the chance to pat myself on the back for prediction. We get these wrong so often. We screw so. up a lot. <laughs> And it might still not happen at all. She's number 60, a long way from top 20. But uh, Anisimova looked great all week. She beat Kasakina 6-2, 6-love, by the way, in the semifinals. That was almost like a statement win, uh, beating the number three seed so handily. And then rallies past Alexandra Sastinovich for the title 6-4 in the third. And interesting to note with both the two winners we just mentioned, Simona Halep and Anisimova, the Darren Cahill connection, because Darren obviously was Simona's coach for a long time up until uh, some point last season. And now he's helping on a trial basis, the young American, and look what happens in their first tournament, working together uh, a trophy. So uh, it seems like everything Cahill touches turns to gold. And uh, I'd like to see if that partnership continues moving forward this year. Why not for the time being anyways, with both of them down there in Australia? Yeah, unbelievable returns already for Darren Cahill and his player Amanda Anisimova to start the season. Unbelievable storylines. And thank you so much uh, to Renee Stubbs for joining us this week. I should note, we have Australian Open qualifying on the go. Rebecca Marino already won her first match. It's her first match win of 2022. She's qualified for the Aussie Open four times. She made the second round last year. So we'll be watching her closely. Braden Sure will be in qualifying as well. And next week, what? Full preview episode? Full preview episode next week. Hopefully, Schnur and Marino were both still around. I just spoke with Marino before you and I started recording this, and she said it felt great to be back in a spot where she had so much success last year. And just look at the ranking difference between then and now. So hopefully things work out for her. And yeah, we'll do a full preview. Look at all the Canadians. Look at the dark horses, the favorites. Uh, maybe get a good guest on there as well. So you don't just have to listen to our two voices. But uh, hey, what a great start to the year. ATP Cup champions. Absolutely fantastic for Canadian tennis. And uh, I have a feeling you and I are going to have uh, quite a few more moments like that to uh, bring up throughout this uh, season that's just getting going. Yeah, and uh, we're sharing them all with you. Follow us on Twitter at MatchPointCan. We're on Instagram sharing a ton of content this year, MatchPoint Canada. You have been listening to MatchPoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We'll talk to you next time. And bad mistakes.